A program needs to explain to the decision maker in human terms why it's making the recommendation. You know, culture change is the hardest nut to crack there. So I like to work it in three ways. Welcome to The Convergence, the Army's Mad Scientist podcast. I'm Matt Sanisbert of the Mad Scientist team. Mad Scientist is a U.S. Army initiative that continually explores the future of warfare, challenges assumptions, and collaborates with academia, industry, and government. You can connect with us through Twitter at ArmyMadSci or subscribe to the blog, the Mad Scientist Laboratory, at madsciblog.tradoc.army.mil. For today's episode, Luke is on-site at the Fed Supernova event in Austin, Texas, where IBM partnered with the Capital Factory and Army Applications Lab, and he's talking with Dr. Interpol Bandari, Global Chief Data Officer for IBM. Dr. Bandari will be discussing data-centric organizations, enacting culture change, and if data really is the new oil. This episode was recorded live along with a number of other podcasts as part of the DODX podcast series. As always, the views expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of the Department of Defense, Department of the Army, Army Futures Command, or Training and Doctrine Command. Let's listen in with Dr. Inderpal Bandari. Thank you. Yeah, so this is, um, this is actually my second go-around at IBM. Mm. So I, it's probably best I start at the first uh, go-around because that tells you, you know, how, about the journey and how I got here. So right after I finished my PhD in Carnegie Mellon in electrical and computer engineering, I joined IBM Research, their uh, Watson Research Lab, as a research scientist. And um, while I was there, I ended up working on, uh, on data uh, and AI. Those were, those, those were my, my foci, mainly because my thesis was an engineering but an AI thesis, so very early engineering AI thesis. And one of the things I did while at um, IBM Research was I created this computer program called Advanced Scout, which ended up being used by every team in the National Basketball Association. And uh, they used it to understand which players to play in playoff games, you know, when it Mm -hmm. reaches a knockout stage. And uh, that made me appreciate and realize that with regard to data, it was going to impact everybody's life. And I think that that example proved that point. After that, I went off and started my own company, essentially selling data mining software to uh, enterprises. Did practically everything wrong that you could think of in terms of running your own company. For about 10 years, though, I did it. So I call it my MBA on the street. <laughs> but it did give me a very good handle on data in the enterprise. And I, I recognize that for the enterprise, data is actually a strategic asset, mm-hmm. but they don't really have the right representation of the C-suite to be able to drive it. Mm-hmm. So I ended up getting a job as the chief data officer of a major healthcare company. There were only four of us at that time globally. And now, of course, the profession's taken off, and uh, there are literally thousands and thousands of us, especially if you, call, if you count the affiliated professions like chief analytics officer or digital officer, transformation officer. And uh, lo and behold, I mean, I've done this job four times now, and IBM being the, being the last, I was called in to say, hey, set up the data office for us, mm. because we recognize now it's a strategic office, so it's my second go around at IBM. So that, that's the journey with regard to how I ended up uh, with the job. I mean, these CEOs have realized that it's a strategic office. They know it needs C-suite representation. Otherwise, you won't get the strategic value. I mean, if you think back, data has been around as long as computers have been around. Mm-hmm. 
-hmm. And there have been people working on data as long as computers have been around. But they've primarily been relegated to the back rooms of the CIO's office. And data has been essentially treated as, uh, you know, exhaust or detritus or something like that as opposed to something that is going to be truly strategic. No, I think that makes so much sense and, and such a fascinating background um, and, and really interesting to our listeners. I think really a good segue to my first question because, uh, you know, as you talked about data being around as long as computers, and one could even look to ancient Egyptians who uh, marked down how much was to be paid for taxes, uh, how much agriculture was being produced uh, to the Romans and, and their uh, extensive record keeping. And we kind of saw data as, um, as you said, not, not represented in the C-suite um, until really the last uh, five and 10 years, especially seeing that explosion because data was something previously that if you were not a computer scientist, uh, if you were not just a scientist in, in general, data was not something that people thought about uh, widespread in the general public. Now the explosion is there and you can't see uh, any news article without thinking about the amount of data that's being talked about, how it's collected, how it's secured, how it's shared. Um, so I think it's, it's really changed a lot, um, especially again over the last really decade. Data has been called the new oil, uh, with it being one of, if not the most valuable resources in the world, as, as you mentioned. Some people have even called it the new air because it's just so essential to activities in everyday life. And then, um, you know, do you think either of those comparisons are accurate or is data just something completely different? Well, so, uh, you know, I think th this is like the, the, the blind man describing the elephant, right? Each one... They have a certain side of it, and they, and they mm -hmm. describe that. I mean, I think uh, it, it, it's important to understand the origin of data, right? It's from the transaction mode. You know, there's a transact, the record keeping, the example you gave from ancient Egypt. And so that transactional record, that's been around for a long, long time. I think the recognition that now it's more than just a record, mm -hmm. that if there are certain patterns, certain insights that are derivable from that uh, data, which can completely reshape your business. It might even invent new businesses and new products. And uh, just that strategic aspect of data is kind of what's, you know, what's driving it. And that's why people now talk about it as the new oil, mm -hmm. saying it's, it's, it's really the, it's, it drives the engine of business. Right. New air, because it's ubiquitous, right? So, and mm -hmm. all those things are true, essentially, but I think the, the key aspect of it is it's something that we use to enable our business strategies or as it takes hold in everybody's life, I think we will, we will use it more and more also for our personal strategies, whatever they be. But that, that's kind of how I see it. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a, a great analogy as well in terms of uh, the blind uh, see, seeing the, or feeling the elephant as it were. Um, with with data being so ubiquitous and such becoming such a centralized part, uh, you see a lot of companies that are focused on being data centric and, and focus on that. But how do you approach data for a company as large and prominent as IBM? Because I think that there's there's a uh, relative comparison to a large organization like the Department of Defense and the U.S. government. Um, and and how do you think about scaling? in those large endeavors that you take on. Yeah, no, no those, those large uh, global far-flung 
also a significant legacy footprint as well. Those organizations, and you know, that, that, that's most of the large companies look like that. The ones who have any longevity mm-hmm. look like that. And uh, in, in, in those instances, to scale, uh, you know, as, as your question points out, I mean, that, that, is, that, 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 is the, that is what you're trying to do. That, that's really your goal as uh, a chief data officer. And the way I go about it, you know, by now for me, it's a craft. I know exactly what I'm going to do day one, day six months, et cetera. But the way I go about it is the first key step is to understand the business strategy. What is the business trying to do? How are they planning to make money? Not how they make money today, but how are they planning to make money in the near future? Mm-hmm. And then using the data strategy to enable them. So what that does, if you're able to, so I'll give you the IBM example. When I joined IBM, it was clear after I understood the situation on the business side, they wanted to make money from cloud and AI. But it was also equally clear to me that in an enterprise setting, AI was not that well understood. You know, in a consumer mm-hmm. setting, it was well understood, but not in an enterprise setting. So I asked the question of the senior leadership, are we going to become a consumer co- company? And they said, no, well, you know, why do you ask? And, we're going to stay enterprise. That's, that's our DNA. And uh, I raised my concern. And then we kind of came to the conclusion eventually that the data strategy should be to make IBM itself into an AI enterprise. And then use that as a showcase for our clients and customers because you know, we, we look like them. So it goes to the spirit of your question. So I will talk about, the, you know, we ended up, we call it the AI blueprint of how to move this forward in a large enterprise of the, of the kind you talked about. And the, the crux of it is there are four dimensions that you have to keep in lock sync to move forward. Two are kind of obvious, you know, the data aspect of it that you've got to make sure that the data is prepared, it's fit for purpose, et cetera. Otherwise, since AI is trained on data, it's not gonna work that well. Technology is the other obvious aspect, which is, you know, you, you, you do, to run these thousands and hundreds of thousands of AI experiments, you've got to have the technological framework, the backbone that allows you to do all that efficiently. But what it ended up happening though was you have to, when you talk about an AI enterprise, we discovered you have to infuse AI into every major business process, mm-hmm. whether it be the supply chain or the procurement or finance or whatever, you know, you wanted to do that in every major business process. So process had to be transformed, had to be changed. That had to keep be kept in lock sync, otherwise no impact. But process is people, so the culture change aspect of it is the fourth dimension, which you, know, you, you have to make sure that people are prepared for the change that you're trying to bring, bring about. Because so in, in this case, they would have to deal with a smart, intelligent system mm-hmm. that would make recommendations to them. And then we had to figure out you know, what does that really mean, both for the person who is dealing with such a system, what kind of preparedness do they, do they need, and also what about the system itself? So, for instance, the system had to be able to explain to the, to the person what it was recommending, mm-hmm. because the person may not be a data scientist or even a technologist. Might be just somebody who's working accounts receivable, for instance. And so that aspect is you know, became very key in terms of moving uh, the culture to the right place so that you could have adoption. I mean, an example that I gave in my uh, opening welcome keynote was we had in a couple of years about 100,000 active users on our system, Mm. on our central system that we had created. Of that, 85,000 came in through a 
bottom-up effort because we had actually pushed forward the culture change aspect of it. So of those four dimensions, you can get a sense of how important that culture change people dimension is to be able to scale it. But bottom line is you've got to keep those four dimensions in sync and mm-hmm. move them forward. And the process and the culture dimensions usually get short shrift because people don't appreciate and they're not as obvious, but they are probably, in my view at least, you know, more important than the first two to, to scale. Absolutely, and I think um, so, so many great points. And I think that begs a question too, do you think that that culture change that um, has, to, has to take place and that, that paradigm shift, does that come from a top-down driven approach? Is it a bottom uh, grassroots kind of groundswell or is it some amalgamation of both? Well, so, you know, culture change is the hardest nut to crack there. So I like to work it in three ways. Top down, obviously, that comes with the strategy. Because if you're working strategy, that stuff is usually top down. That's where the funding gets decided and all that. And you'll get some top down help. But as I mentioned in my example, that was only 10 to 15% right. of what got us, you know, got, got us to where we wanted to be eventually. You also, because of the process aspect of this, you have to work it also laterally. So with the, all your peers, the department heads, business heads, all those people have to be bought in. And then, but that's still again, like 15%, you know. The, the, the rest is bottom up grassroots by and the people who are actually doing the work. You've got to make sure that they are prepared. And then also the change that you seek to bring in, in terms of the technology and the systems, the user interface, if you will, is really adapted mm. to, to the change that you, you seek. And significant amounts of effort have to be spent both from a system design aspect as well as from an organizational construct aspect to make those things possible. I, I think that makes so much sense. Um, one of my favorite books, uh, Prediction Machines, uh, really explains how uh, you can you can look at artificial intelligence and machine learning, and uh, there are people out there, even even across the media, that will speak about it as magic fairy dust um, that you just sprinkle on things. Um, but it's so important to understand the processes, uh, your business workflows and task flows, um, because that's that's where the point of execution is for that AI and ML. Um, and if you don't understand that, and you don't understand your data, you just can't get there. Um, I think. You know, going back to your point about culture change, um, the government is, the U.S. government is really dealing with this right now um, in a transformation from uh, an information age uh, to really an intelligent age as we go forward with uh, potential AI ML solutions, the automation, smart everything, uh, eventually the internet of everything. But the government can't make every employee a data scientist and, and likely would not want to. And the DOD can't make every soldier, sailor, airman, marine, guardian a data scientist. Um, but we would like them to be data literate and, and understand that the critical points. And so how do you, um, you were featured as um, one of the top 100 uh, C-suite data experts um, in the country or rather globally. Um, and in that article, you talk some about inculcating that culture and really building um, a, a natural predilection to uh, data centricity. And so how do you inculcate a data centric or a truly data-driven culture in such a very large organization? 
Yeah, and you know, some of the examples that we discuss, they 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 go to that point, and and you know, the with regard to making every soldier a data scientist and so forth, they shouldn't. They shouldn't. Right. Right? I mean, that's the that's why the culture change is such a significant aspect of what uh, needs to be done. Mm-hmm. So I'll you know, I'll go through a couple of examples from. Uh, the IBM experience, and then you, you'll, you'll get a sense of uh, perhaps how this should be scaled in a large organization, uh, you know, like, like, like the Department of Defense as well. But certainly you, don't, you, you are not going to be able to make every employee or soldier uh, into what you need, which is why the aspect of um, designing the technology as well as the system becomes critical. So I'll use an example to make that come home. You know, in, uh, in 1995, IBM had a, an AI computer program that defeated the world chess champion, uh, you know, in, in a pretty convincing way. And then in 2011, we had an AI program that won the Jeopardy competition. Mm-hmm. But in terms of AI in the enterprise, that is just taking hold. And it kind of you know, behooves us to step back as to why that is. Because we obviously had the algorithms to make it work. We had the technology to make it work as early as 2011. But why is it taking so long? The reason it's taking so long, it's because of the points that you alluded to, which is you've got to bring people along so that they can actually use the technology. So if you look at AI, people have to trust it. You know, if you try to bring it into an enterprise and the AI is sitting on a major business process, it's learning all the IP related to the process. So you've got to be real sure that that belongs to you. It's not the vendors. All the data that it's collecting, the insights belongs to you because it's your data, so it should be your insights. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of one big hurdle. Then at the decision maker level, you know, if the, if the AI program, like even when I did that basketball program, and it would come back with counterintuitive patterns. Those are the only patterns that are useful, right? Because the otherwise the decision maker understands what to do. But if it's something counterintuitive, if it says play your two backup players, which actually did happen in a playoff game that you're down 2-0 in a best of five series, the coach questions it, right? The coach, in fact, I got a call saying, if I play this and I lose, not only am I going to lose the game, the series, I'm also going to lose my job and mm-hmm. my career. And mm-hmm. People will think I don't know what I'm doing. It's the same thing, right? If, you, if the AI program tells a surgeon, amputate the left leg, they're not going to do it. You know, the, 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 the program needs to explain to the decision maker in human terms why it's making the recommendation, right? Mm-hmm. What are the options? What was considered? What wasn't considered? Et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So that's another aspect of it, you know, the tra- explainability. So we did transparency. We did explainability. Then there are aspects that come in with regard to fairness if you're dealing with data about people. Right. You know, if you're right. a large retail organization hiring people, you're using AI and it, there's a bias there, it's not going to fly. It's going to essentially uh, break down. So there are all these attributes that come into play that now have to be designed into the technology mm-hmm. and into the interface, you know, which is why we, what we spent our time doing after that was we started actually putting in these features into a platform so that it became easy for folks to use it. Now, we don't have it perfect yet, but that's the idea, to put in all these different attributes into our cloud pack for data systems so that it can actually uh, hunt in the right way in the enterprise. 
And so those are the, the steps that need to happen on the technology side. Then you've got to make the, right, the equivalent steps on the, on the people side. You know, the training so that they can actually work with these systems. The comfort, the trust again. You know, am I going to lose my job if I do this? If I train the system, is it going to replace me? Mm-hmm. These, you know, you, you've got to handle all these things before there's a true grassroots kind of momentum, which is eventually what will get you to the you know, adoption levels that, uh, that are needed. So that's why I kind of made the point that these aspects of readying the technology for adoption as well as preparing the workforce or you know, whoever are the users for adoption, that's a significant part of the effort and you, you, you have to make it. Department of Defense, I know now that you know, they, they are, they, at least there was an initiative hiring chief data officers for every mm-hmm. major mm-hmm. Uh, area which I think is a tremendous step in the right direction because these folks are change agents. I mean, primarily, that's what their job is. And that will help. They will be catalysts. But you still have to do that hard work for preparing both the technology as well as the, the workforce to be able to adopt it. Yeah, I agreed 100%, sir, because I think that um, you, can, you can install those um, C-suite level executives as chief data officers at at major commands across the Department of Defense. Um, but as you noted in your previous examples, you know, that might end up being 15% of the solution of the design is there, the systems are there. But if you don't inculcate within the culture um, for folks to use that, to think in a data-centric manner, you'll never, you'll never get there. There's one other major point there. You know, if it's a data-first, data-centric culture, people have to be empowered. Because think of it this way, if it's a data-first culture, if they see the data and they come to some judgment and they're going to act on it, if they have to come back up the ranks to ask for permission, it's no longer a data-first culture. So that empowerment aspect is kind of key, which then leads to other things, because if you empowered people willy-nilly, uh, then, you know, then it's called, it, it can also lead to chaos. So that aspect of working the... The, the workforce, there's the training piece of it, but then there's also the empowerment piece and how that's done judiciously so that you're able to move forward and truly uh, have a data-first culture take hold. I, I think that makes a lot of sense in terms of, um, do you see that being an issue with large organizations and especially with, with the Department of Defense where sometimes you have almost a... Um, especially in, in really these high-risk operations. And we see it, we see it in um, air, uh, air travel and other areas like that as well, where it's a, almost a zero-failure culture. Um, do you think that's antithetical to building the data-centric culture? You know, I, I think maybe on surface it, appeal, it appears like that. I'm not sure that that's actually the case. You know, obviously, I'm not an expert on the armed forces or anything. But when you look at what happens during an actual wartime operation, mm-hmm. right? They, they, the, the, the units, they make adjustments on the fly. I mean, there are incredible stories of just incredible things that people have done because they are empowered to do that. You know, I mean, things break down, the plan is disrupted. It goes back to that Mike Tyson quote, right? The strategy works until you're punched in the face, right? So it's, but you see that that, the, the armed forces have already done that in that context. Mm-hmm. I think it's now the question is, how do you do it in peacetime, right? When you right, don't have right. that operation, and how are you able to do it? But I do think that there's an existence proof that 
it already works there. That's a great point. And I think we see that in um, even in the Russia-Ukraine conflict right now. Um, the Ukrainians able to be yeah. extremely innovative and, and, uh, and know, flexible in there. All those yeah. things are encouraged. They're empowered units, all that. But, you know, so you've got to translate some of that over to the peace line. Absolutely. And I think your, your point is well made about the man-machine relationship that we talk about in terms of trust. Because it's not just a buzzword that's thrown out there. It's a true relationship a true in the sense of um, understanding, building that trust. And then also understanding um, for, for people who have uh, significant others, understanding your partner's strengths, weaknesses, um, their limitations or their personal boundaries. Um, you're, you're having to understand that between both the man uh, or the person and the machine. And I, I think that's a, a great point, sir. Um, IBM and, and the Department of Defense obviously have a very longstanding relationship, um, partnerships throughout time that, where we've seen um, massive gains in technological advancement, um, a, a major part of helping the Department of Defense uh, to make the really the U.S. military the best in the world. And so looking at that relationship from your perspective um, as a chief data officer, having worked in this field for so long, what do you think maybe the U.S. government and the De Department of Defense are maybe just not thinking about enough when it comes to data? Um, I mean, I think, you know, again, very hard for me to really answer that question, but just looking at the moves that have been made, like the appointment of the chief uh, data officer, the moves that I'm privy to, and also, you know, just the topic of this, the, the overall theme of this conference, with mm -hmm. igniting culture change and so forth. I, you know, I think it's 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 uh, moving in the in, in in the right direction. I think it's clearly uh, people are thinking about it the the right way. That there's an awareness about it. There's also action that's being implemented around it. I, I think to go back to the points I made earlier, I, I you know from my own experience in this space, there is a tremendous amount of effort on that last aspect of culture change, both in terms of uh, you know, organizational structure, also workforce preparedness, as well as uh, on, on the system side, you know, the, the man-machine interfaces. And that's probably where I'd look to, to see if enough is being done there or not. That would be my, my thinking on it. Well, I, I greatly appreciate that perspective, sir. So I'll switch real quick to our rapid-fire questions. We like to ask all our guests. Um, it helps our audience get a better understanding of, of you as a person. And uh, so the, our first question is, um, what technology or trend keeps you up at night? Oh, it's a great, great, great question. So, um, you know, our, uh, one of our constitutional founders, right, Ben Franklin, was a big proponent of creating uh, libraries in every neighborhood. Mm -hmm. That's why you see libraries in every neighborhood in, in the U.S. And uh, his reasoning for that was, well, you know, knowledge can't be trusted in the hands of a few. Mm -hmm. And it, that's why you need to proliferate it. People need to have it. That's how you're going to preserve, essentially, the, the democracy, the rights, and all that stuff. And I think where we are now, some of these newer technologies, data, AI. I mean, these are transformative technologies. And I think that's, in my mind, I think that's, that's the same equation that we now have to translate over to them. Because again, just too much power if entrusted only in the hands of a few. You know, the, 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 the general communities have to get involved in shaping where we take this. Absolutely. So that's probably the, the, the major thing that, uh, 
keeps me up. Absolutely, and I, I appreciate that answer because I think um, there's efforts from dedicated folks like yourself who are looking at trying to make it accessible um, to yeah, so yeah. many people across the globe and not, not just to elite uh, elites and not just to the the biggest and most major tech companies. Yes, it's the data literacy angle you talked about. You know, I would put AI literacy. I mean, just people have to get involved. One hundred percent. So, second question, sir. Uh, what is something most people would not know about you that you're willing to share on the air? <laughs> I mean, obviously, you know, work keeps me very busy. Family keeps me very busy. Outside of that, uh, I practice martial arts. Oh, I'm actually good. a fourth degree black belt in Taekwondo. Wow. I also teach it, so people don't know that about me. <laughs> they don't expect that as well. So. No, that's fantastic, sir, and I'll, I'll try not to get on your bad side. <laughs> uh, um, so, uh, final question. Uh, people say this is sometimes the hardest in the podcast. What is your favorite movie? Yeah, so, you know, the, uh, the, mo- the two movies that came immediately to my mind uh, when you asked that question. So I don't know if they're my favorites or not, but they're the ones that came to mind immediately. One was Ben-Hur, you know, which is the classic yep. uh, movie. Uh, and the other one, American Sniper, that came okay. to mind. And I think that came to mind because of the discussion we've been having. You know, there are two instances in that movie where uh, the, the protagonist, the hero, he, you know, he, he's faced with the decision of whether or not to, to uh, shoot a child. And uh, in, in you know, and, and and he makes the he makes the right decision, and it goes back to his own experience as a family man, as a dad, and understanding you know the, the, the essentially what the mother-child relationship is like, et cetera, et cetera, and that helps him determine that. So this goes back to you know our point on why AI needs to be human-centric, because that experience that a person has that one brings into their judgment is essentially hard to capture in machines. I and, think, and, but then it's, you know, it translates over to decision making. So I just thought that movie made a tremendous point. I think that's such a great analogy to, um, a, as you said, how we think about things now and uh, when we talk about artificial intelligence, machine learning, that um, there, there are certain things that you cannot uh, emulate or replicate that humans have. Uh, when it comes to emotion, contextualization, uh, and using that past experience. So, uh, sir, I just want to thank you so much for coming on. Uh, It's been an absolute pleasure to have you on. And uh, thank you so much for coming to the podcast. Uh, I want to thank Army Applications Lab, uh, IBM, and uh, Capital Factory for hosting us today with this great setup. And uh, really excited to have you on, sir. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for listening to The Convergence. I'd like to thank our guest, Dr. Indrapal Bandari, for talking with us. You can connect with Mad Scientist through Twitter at ArmyMadSci, and don't forget to subscribe to our blog, The Mad Scientist Laboratory, at madsciblog.tradoc.army.mil. Finally, if you enjoyed this podcast, please consider giving us a rating or review on Apple, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you accessed it. This feedback helps improve future episodes of The Convergence and allows us to reach a bigger and broader audience.